for Health's Sake, a simple chat for better health. I'm your host, Donna Karras. These podcasts are a publication of Amory Hospital and Clinic, Hudson Hospital and Clinic, Lakeview Hospital, Stillwater Medical Group, and Westfield Hospital and Clinic. All are part of a nonprofit healthcare organization committed to enhancing community health. I'm speaking with Heather Erickson, Director of Behavioral Health Services at Amory Hospital and Clinic. We're talking about depression. Heather, does everyone get depressed? Well, this is the first big myth that I cover when I do presentations uh, and education about depression. So everyone might have periods of time where they feel sad or grieve um, at different times in their life, but that's really different than clinical depression. Clinical depression is really more than a temporary mood or feeling. Do you have a definition for clinical depression? Yeah, so it's referred to in a few different ways. Some call it clinical depression. Some people say major depressive disorder. But either way, it's a biologically-based illness that has real uh, physical, emotional, and behavioral symptoms. The American Psychiatric Association publishes the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Currently, there's the fifth edition out. And they characterize major depression or clinical depression as something that has an episode that lasts longer than two weeks, and it includes uh, five or more of the following symptoms on this list. So a loss of interest or pleasure in activities all day, nearly every day, changes in appetite and weight, some sleep disturbance, could be insomnia or hypersomnia, people can feel agitated or irritable or slowed down nearly every day, having extreme fatigue, loss of energy nearly every day, Uh, that low self-esteem, worthless feeling, guilty feelings in excess nearly every day, and then trouble concentrating or being indecisive, again, nearly every day. Uh, Finally, and one of the most common that some folks experience is those suicidal thoughts or intentions or recurrent thoughts about death. One of the classes that I teach is mental health first aid, and we talk about diagnosable mental illnesses as impacting people in duration and severity. So if you think about feeling sad uh, versus a diagnosable clinical depression, the difference in that is how long that feeling lasts and how severe it is, how much impact it has on your life, your ability to work, to carry out activities, uh, to engage in things you enjoy. I refer to that often as your ability to live, laugh, and love. Um, And that's the difference that makes it diagnosable. What does depression look like? Well, it looks like different things for different people. The symptoms that a person experiences really often differ from person to person. And if you think about it, you know, our brains and our bodies are, are different, uh, very individualized. So it makes sense that these symptoms then would be different from person to person. Um, some people, as I, as I previously explained um, in the when we were talking about the diagnosis itself, some people experience changes in their sleep, so sleeping too much, sleeping too little, changes in their appetite eating too much, eating too little. And if you think about it, if you're not sleeping enough and not eating enough or vice versa, uh, we know that food and sleep have direct impact on our mood, right? And most often, you know, we joke in our culture about people getting hangry when you're so hungry or angry. But if you think about it, if you're not sleeping or eating enough or sleeping or eating too much, it would make sense then that you may uh, present with some symptoms of irritability. It might seem kind of extra cranky to other people. Many folks who are diagnosed with depression uh, experience trouble focusing on simple activities, trouble making decisions. Uh, some people experience kind of slowed thinking and they have trouble carrying out routines. They 
become less interested in their life, uh, in their relationship, in things around them. And and so from the outside looking in, if we see people experiencing these things, some folks can form judgments like, oh, that person seems like they're being lazy or lazy and crabby. That's what it can look like, again, from the outside in. It feels, for some people, there are those chronic feelings of really low self-worth. Folks dwelling on losses, failures, feeling really hopeless. Um, for some people, depression can be physical. They actually also experience aches and pains. When I do my mental health first aid class, one of the things I talk about a lot is the brain-body connection. And, and for some, it doesn't make a lot of sense that, oh, you're diagnosed with depression. Well, why do you have this chronic leg pain? But if you think about the fact that our brain and our body are connected, if you are experiencing emotional pain or pain within your brain, it kind of does make sense that it could be connected to physical pain in your body. For some people, again, the, the irritability is more prominent uh, when they're diagnosed with depression. Some people also might engage in risky behavior. Again, that could be based on those low feelings of self-worth um, or hopelessness. And so, if you consider those that list of symptoms or things that folks might experience, it makes some sense that the, the potential functional impairment in someone's life is really pretty high. For folks who are depressed, there is an incredibly high rate of functional impairment in relationships, in one's profession and workplace, uh, their ability to perform. There's high rates of family conflict, marital conflict. Um, and again, if you think about the fact that the person experiencing depression, especially if they haven't identified yet that it's depression, others might experience some of those symptoms to be, well, this person is just being lazy or mean or crabby for no reason. So there, there are definite impairments, potentials when one's diagnosed with depression if it's not treated. What causes depression? Unfortunately, there's not a single identified cause. Uh, depression can be caused by a number of things. It can be triggered. It might be spontaneous uh, and not connected to a life crisis. Someone could have a physical illness or a trauma um, that might bring it on. But there, really, there are several factors that can contribute to cause depression. And so... When I say several factors, I'm talking about risk factors. And when we talk about risk factors, it's really important to remember that a risk factor indicates an increased probability, but is not necessarily a predictor. So if you have a risk factor, it doesn't mean you're going to get depression. It just means there's an increased probability that you could. And so what are some of those risk factors that can contribute to diagnosis of depression? Well, we know that genetics is one. Um, mood disorders and risk of suicide tend to run in families. That's based on science and Trauma is another. When folks experience trauma at an early age, it can cause long-term changes in the way the brain responds to fear and to stress, and therefore that's a risk factor. Life circumstances. If a person goes through their life, and especially as an adult, and is constantly in a state of duress, marital strain, finances, you know, that can be a risk factor. Uh, a person's brain structure. Imaging shows that a frontal lobe of someone's brain is less active when they're depressed, and so that causes the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus to change in how they respond to hormone stimulation. So if your brain structure is different, that can be a risk factor. And also other medical conditions. Folks with a history of sleep disturbance, chronic pain, anxiety, ADHD, there's research backing up that those folks are more likely to develop depression or can be. And finally, drugs and alcohol. NAMI has a study that shows that 30% of people with substance abuse problems also have depression. So that can be a risk factor. But really, there's not a single pointed cause for depression at this point. Who gets clinical depression? 
Well, uh, like many other illnesses, depression does not discriminate. In 2013, SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, did a survey on drug use and health, and they found that roughly 7% of American adults uh, reported a diagnosis of depression in their life. And I would emphasize that that is the only the reported number. I would venture to guess that the actual number, uh, including folks who did not report, would be much higher. Men get depression. Men are less commonly diagnosed, and studies have shown that this is likely due to uh, the fact that in our culture, men aren't necessarily raised to seek help, right? And so they may not do so due to shame or feeling inadequate. That said, studies have also shown that men are four times more likely to die by suicide than women. That is due to the fact that men tend to have more access to lethal means like firearms. Women get depression. About 9 to 16% of American women will experience postpartum depression, according to NAMI studies. Women's biology and hormone changes can also be factors uh, in them being diagnosed with depression at some point in their life. Seniors. Seniors get depression, uh, although this group is often untreated because sadness at times for these folks is often equated to being a normal part of aging. You know, friends and family are passing away. It's normal that you're feeling sad, um, you know, and that feeling will pass. And so sometimes those those folks fly under the radar and the depression isn't diagnosed when it maybe should be. The LGBTQ population, these folks are at higher risk for depression because they regularly face discrimination from society at large. Um, in addition to discrimination and other things from family, coworkers, classmates, peers. Kids and teens are diagnosed with depression, and those at higher risk include those who have diagnoses of ADHD, learning disorders, oppositional defiance disorder. Uh, in addition, as I uh, stressed before, those who have experienced significant trauma early in life are oftentimes diagnosed with depression. How do you treat depression? Well, the good news is uh, there are lots of options to treat depression. People can and do recover every day. Recovery and treatment uh, for each person is individualized and really depends on the individual. And again, if you think about it, we all have different bodies and brains. And so it makes sense that the treatment for one person might look really different than the treatment for another person. So treatment options include medications. There are antidepressants, mood stabilizers, and these are things that can be managed by a primary care physician, a nurse practitioner, or a psychiatrist. Again, medications are helpful for some, not helpful for others. It all depends on the person and their brain and the chemistry in their body. Psychotherapy is a very common treatment strategy for folks with depression. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of psychotherapy, um, from cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. There's family-focused therapy, solution therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, or DBT. Um, but those are just some common types. And again, the type of psychotherapy uh, that's going to benefit the person is all very individualized. Light therapy, uh, this is something I can't emphasize enough, especially for those of us who live in the Midwest, where it gets very dark for a very long period of the year. We know that vitamin D and sunlight have an impact on our mood, on our energy level. And so something as simple as using a light box or a dawn simulator is something that can be helpful for some folks who have depression. Having more exposure to light in your life makes a difference. And there's lots of research behind that. Exercise, moving your body. There's also lots of research behind this that uh, we know that moving your body naturally releases endorphins and energy. And so if folks are engaged in regular exercise, again, that's a common treatment strategy. Brain stimulation therapies, ECT is a common 
treatment strategy in this category, also repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMs. Those are specialized treatments that, again, are ordered by physicians and dependent on really the person and their level of depression. There are a ton of other alternative therapies out there um, that folks use that can be beneficial, acupuncture, massage, meditation, uh, nutrition, healthy eating, using essential oils, sensory stimulation things. There, again, there's a wide variety, and, and it all depends on the person and what's going to be helpful for them individually. Um, psychoeducation, learning about the illness, uh, what does it mean for me, how does it feel for me, and how can I engage in, in helping myself to manage, you know, regardless of the tools I'm using, what are my strategies, how do I know when I'm starting to not feel good, um, and how can I help myself feel better. So learning about it and taking some accountability can be really helpful for folks who are diagnosed with depression. That mind-body-spirit connection, whether it's meditation, praying, having a connection to a faith community, um, that can be a big part of folks' treatment and recovery. But what I know and what I've seen in my work in this field uh, is that the most effective treatment strategy is really a combination of any and all the things that I mentioned. It's going to be individualized. It's going to depend on the person, their brain, their life circumstance, et cetera. But the good news is it is treatable. People do recover. They do feel better. If you're someone with depression, what can you do? Well, I've already talked a little bit about a few of those things. And I think all in all, what I would say, my best advice in this situation is to educate yourself and make a plan. And also to think about and remember that depression is a health condition. It's a clinical diagnosis, just like diabetes. So if I were diagnosed with diabetes, what would I do? Well, I, for one, would want to learn about what does diabetes mean? Um, how do I know if I'm starting to not feel well and what can I do? How do I manage my blood sugar? Getting that education and really understanding what depression is for you as an individual, how it manifests, how it feels, and then what helps you feel better is really going to be the key to success. So learning, then identifying those warning signs. Okay, I know when I start to get a little crabby about minor things, I might be starting to tip the scale and I need to take some action. I need to talk to a friend. I need to do some yoga. I need to use some essential oils, whatever the plan is, be able to identify that and work your plan. Being open and honest with the people around you, developing a support system is crucial. Talking to your providers, whoever that is for you, if it's a health coach, if it's a physician, um, friends, family, faith communities, making sure that people know and understand, hey, I have this diagnosis, here's what I'm doing about it, here's how I'm going to work through when I'm struggling, and here's how you can help me. And, and part of that includes identifying healthy coping skills and, and other emotional supports. So what does that look like? When I start to notice that I'm starting to not feel well, what can I do to help myself feel better? Do I need to engage in some more regular exercise? Do I need to watch my sugar intake? Um, do I need to go see my provider? It's going to be different for everyone. But again, it's really about learning for yourself what the diagnosis means, how it feels in your mind, in your body, and, and how you feel when you feel better. How did you get there? Not abusing chemicals and taking care of your body are, are two other really important pieces that I would add in terms of how folks can manage if they're diagnosed with depression. You mentioned coping skills. Do you have some other helpful self-coping skills? <laughs> I certainly do. So I mentioned briefly using light therapy. You can buy a light box at Walgreens, Target, Costco. They sell them everywhere. They're fairly inexpensive. But simply making your environment brighter, um, especially in the dark winter months, can be helpful. Um, and that's a coping skill that a lot of folks use. It's very, very common. 
exercising, moving your body on a regular basis. Again, we know that exercise releases endorphins and hormones, positive ones that can help us. And exercising doesn't have to mean that you're going to run five miles every other day. It can be chair exercises. It can be yoga. Anything goes. Taking a walk, just making sure that you're moving your body um, and sustaining that energy. Music can be a coping skill, and it is for a lot of people, especially upbeat or cheery music. It can naturally enhance your mood. Another thing that we talk with folks about, especially folks who are engaged in therapy, is helping others, you know, volunteering. Um, There's a lot of research behind that volunteering or giving back or giving to others improves your life satisfaction. It makes, it naturally makes you feel good to give joy or to give good to others. Getting out, making sure that you're getting fresh air. Again, this is a coping skill that a lot of people have on their list. Getting outside, breathing fresh air, feeling sunlight can improve focus, reduce depressed moods, and decrease stress levels naturally. Some people find that journaling is really helpful, uh, especially for folks who don't necessarily want to have that one-to-one therapy conversation on a regular basis. Sometimes you just need to write it down to get the thoughts or the feelings out of your system, and that can be really helpful. Using guided imagery, this is, again, another really common thing that a lot of people use whether it's guided imagery to help you fall asleep, to decrease stress. There are a ton of resources out there via podcasts, um, on CDs, DVDs that can help. And then finally, practice sleep hygiene. And what is sleep hygiene? It means going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, roughly uh, every day. We know that sleep has a huge impact on our mood and our ability to cope in our lives. And so um, managing that is is just a really key thing and a, a coping skill that I think everybody can use. Can you recommend some online and local resources? Certainly. Definitely NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I.org, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. Tons of information on their website about depression, coping skills, resources, where you can find this or that. They also have general information about a lot of other different diagnoses on their website, so I would encourage folks to check them out. Similarly, www.mentalhealthfirstaid, all one word, .org. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a mental health first aid instructor, and their website is similar to NAMI's in that it has a lot of general information, resources, as well as folks can schedule if they're interested in becoming a mental health first aider. There are courses available to register for on their website. Makeitokay.org um, is another website that has a lot of different testimonies about folks living with mental illness, whether it be depression or another diagnosis diagnosis, sort of their survival stories, and then how to really support and talk to uh, folks who might be living with a mental health condition, Um, ways that we, for a loved one or a supportive friend, can talk to those that we know and be supportive and be in their support network. In our local area, um, Polk County has a mental health page, and it's simply mentalhealthpolk.org. That has links to different resources in this surrounding area as well as emergency information. Uh, and then finally, where I work, amorymedicalcenter.org. Um, if you look up Behavioral Health Center, it will tell you about the services that we have and can offer folks who might be struggling. Great information. Thanks, Heather. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening.